0: This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're in the enemy camp with special guest C. Derek Varn. We're about to chop it up about Joseph de 1797 classic of counter-revolution, Considerations on France. I mean, it's such cutting critique. It really gets under your skin.
1: Sit in the dark and ponder how I want it to make the bottom bubble the floor and they all fall down. It goes, it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes, it, goes. it goes.
0: Anyway, we really should be heading to the discussion. Out
1: of the shadows barrage of witch tongue, cobra spit over apocalyptic cult, killer cauldron, smoke stop music, seriously, yeah. It goes, it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes,
2: it goes Can't stop the Welcome.
1: Quick note, we are pleased to welcome back C. Derek Varn, who has not been back for a while, but we're glad to have him back now.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get to and talk Varn. about reactionaries, which is something that yes, we're to go in the along. enemy camp.
2: With so, C. Derek Varn.
1: so why why did we read you suggested this, Lexi? Why did we read mm-hmm. this? So recently I've been kind of dealing with
0: the post left and other kinds of political thinkers that think something like this, that the movement of history has superseded the categories left and right as useful political descriptors. And so we can't be continuing to think or organize in that way because that's just outmodded. And to me, de Mister seems to be the paradigmatic reactionary, the counter-revolutionary par excellence, like the, the the case from which all other counter-revolution in like, this Western tradition is derived from. That might be slightly overstating the case, but I think you understand what I mean. This is the, the, the hard right position, classically yeah. speaking.
2: Just to talk about left-right division, how it develops from the French Revolution itself and so basically that that very event in history is kind of what determines what the right and the left mean the right was the side of the national assembly that supported the monarchy and the left was the side that supported revolution and throughout the entire left of the french revolution throughout the right you see the kind of the beginnings of what would be the modern factions of today's right and left
0: right so to answer your question directly it's to judge whether this post-left claim, which was also made by Alexander Dugan, if you remember in our enemy camp episode about him, uh, that left and right don't matter anymore. Uh, so this is also a popular third positionist or, and fascist claim. So it's something I'm inherently skeptical of. Um, but basically, yeah, we're interrogating de Maistre, as, as far as I'm concerned, in order to make sense of whether left and right still applies today.
2: Yeah, because de Maestra- you have Edmund Burke, who is your, your modern conservative.
0: He's a liberal conservative.
2: He's, yeah, yeah, compared is to he... the maestro, he's a liberal. The maestro doesn't just want to keep history from going too fast and radical and conserve tradition. The maestro wants to burn down the 18th century, burn down the Enlightenment, and return to the primal kind of uh, pre-Enlightenment past. Right. Know,
3: Until very recently, we haven't had de influence conservatives in the United States. It wouldn't make any sense, right? Because de it's like, he doesn't just want to burn down the Enlightenment. I mean, like, he would be okay with burning down the Reformation and, you know. Yeah, no point of
0: comparison.
4: To be fair, actually, to be fair, he doesn't feel like we can actually go back. He doesn't, like, generally his whole thing was giving advice to, like, the Russian czar and, like basically advising them like not to accept like Protestants into their governmental ranks and stuff like that.
1: Can't have that filth in here. Can't let yeah. that in here. No, it was literally
4: like his argument was basically like since they're immigrants wanting to come over, obviously there must be something wrong with them because any person that would want to leave their country must be utterly restless and like continually yeah. unsatisfied.
3: I mean he has a very <laughs> interesting um theory of national character too and like each nation exists because it has a a, a divinely inspired mission for which it is to
1: yeah, um, yeah to that's, weird, that's weirdly, weirdly proto-Hegelian
2: <laughs> right, right, that's my thoughts exactly I mean, I don't know, he has this classic quote which I'm just gonna have it set up right now that basically describes his theory of nations he says, the constitution 1975 like its predecessors was made for man but there is no such thing as a man in the world. In my lifetime, I have seen Frenchmen, Italians, Russians, etc. Thanks to Montesquieu, I even know that one can be a Persian. <laughs> but as for man, I declare that I have never seen, I have never in my life met him. Exist, he is unknown to me. There is no humanity. It's complete anti-humanism. There are nations and there yeah. are peoples, but there's there's a Volk, there's a people, but there's no humanity in general.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how postmodernists in and reactionaries
2: girls. believe.
0: Well, that's anti-humanism. That's that's the yeah exactly, and it's it,
2: making the statement of anti-humanism in re- reaction to Enlightenment and its original inception. They all anti-humanism, you know, kind of flows from the Maestro, I think.
0: This is something I try to challenge my contemporary left friends. You know, to be like, hey, why is it that a lot of common sense? beliefs on the left today historically speaking genealogically were the reactionary positions what happened <coughs> Nietzsche <coughs> <Nisha. laughs> I think I think Heidegger is is more he- he- than Nietzsche Heidegger like,
2: Nietzsche well, I think you can yeah, you can look <laughs> at the influence that Nietzsche and Heidegger have had on the Frankfurt school and post structuralism and how these ideologies have become very constitutive of modern left thought
3: yeah i mean derrida's focus on difference actually sounds a lot like this too if you really mm. dig well it sounds like way. post-colonial theory
2: but the enlightenment idea of humanity is inherently eurocentric and white and humanity itself is trying to force you know peoples to assimilate into whiteness and it's destroying differences and so there really is no humanity but just different peoples and different cultures that really can never be considered part of one thing because they have so much more different than they have in common that you can't really speak of a common humanity without doing violence to the differences. According yeah. To
3: I was, I was thinking about that when I was reading this, because it, it reads, mm-hmm. it reads a lot like that. When a lot of decolonial uh, the theory, like just like you can't understand X experience, China, you know, Peruvian, whatever it does read like Demastra and that, I'm going to jump ahead to other reactionaries and we can bring it back. But, like, that's why decolonial languages shows up in, like, Alain de Beniste. And um, mm-hmm. and a lot of the other, like, modern French reactionaries is because they completely picked up on that and traced it back to Demonstra. Yeah.
2: Well, a lot of the new rights, the intellectuals of the new right, they don't sell their ideology as racial supremacy so much as a right to cultural difference. Right, they frame it in terms of self-determination, and they actually steal a lot of leftist anti-colonial terms, you know, in order to create this idea that allows for some kind of European identitarianism, while at the same time trying to not appeal like a racial right. supremacist. I
3: mean, the drop on the veil of that has happened recently, where they're much more willing to be outright racial supremacists. But if you look at uh, like Identity Europa and the European Right Greca they love this stuff because they totally appeal to it and you'll see them like give critical support to the DPRK and and stuff to try to like influence leftists. And it was effective for them for a time. I mean, like they took over Telios magazine kind of Sam Francis and uh, Paul Godfrey were on the editorial staff of Telios, the Frankfurt school journal. Like that stuff is, is crazy. And if you read this semester, you can trace it back to this for a Catholic. This is a weirdly anti-Christian, um, Sentiment, right? Because, yeah. like, Christianity's a, like they are the people who kind of invent, you know, Christianity is beyond the ethnoid, it has a universal subject. And Demastra's mm. saying, no,
0: it's uh, I think that's pretty interesting. And in a way, Demestra, in a fucked up kind of way, is accepting the problem of universality from a Christian perspective. This is what you're getting at you fundamentally, see? like. We haven't overcome that problem. And it's so strange to see it in this funhouse mirror.
2: Yeah, because yeah. Catholicism is supposed to be universalistic. And this is actually really fucked up, but kind of funny. Because there is this fascist cartoon that um, was kind of describing the situation where one of the characters was going to his uh, traditionalist Catholic priest. So he wanted to be... Uh, you know, forgiven for his sins, but his sin was race-mixing, and the priest would only forgive him for having, you know, sex outside of marriage, but not for race-mixing. And so he got all mad at his priest or something. So it just shows how in reactionary thought and in traditionalist Catholic thought, there is this weird disconnect between these ideas of reactionary nationhood and then the kind of universalism of Christianity.
3: Yeah, it's strange, particularly given who he sided with, for example, in Catholic, you know, internal politics. He was probably educated by Jesuits. Um, From every source I've read, they can't prove it. But he sided with the Jesuits against the Jansenists, who were actually like, I mean, they're Catholic. They also get anathematized later. But um, they they are uniquely French. <laughs> you know, they're mm. they're proto-Calvinists who are uniquely French.
2: Yeah, you, know, you would yeah. expect him to be a Jansenist, basically.
3: Yeah. So Demestre's all kinds of confused in these ways. Like when you really look at that, you're like, this guy is
1: weird. This entire thing is written in service of defending uh, the monarchy as like a yes. concept, right? Well, specifically the so, restoration of the bourbons, like not yeah. just any monarchy, but this divinely mandated family.
3: Yeah, Louis Napoleon can't do shit.
0: Yeah, he doesn't
1: count. But it, like his entire argument basically hinges on, uh, mo- there are monarchies. There, there were always monarchies, so there will always be monarchies. Like even even to like counter the idea of like the United States being an exception, he goes, "Well, I'll just give it time." Yeah, yeah.
2: He basically says there's laws of nature that humans have to follow, and if we try to diverge from these laws of nature. Then we're just going to end up falling back into the correct order. There's going to well, no, be some kind
1: of yeah. He just views like he doesn't believe in history. Yeah,
5: he just he thinks really...
1: there's like a static form of like social order, and anything that like doesn't fall from that is like a temporary perversion.
3: Well, that's not entirely yeah. true, though, because well, the thing doesn't... is, the reason he likes
2: monarchy is because monarchy has a tradition, and it has a past, and so the ruler has a way to command authority because he can appeal to relatives as a source of authority and that creates order and legitimacy and whatever creates order and legitimacy has to be good because you know it's that's just a general reactionary idea
3: but dimestra does have this weird argument where he basically does say i'm trying to remember exactly what chapter it's in that um that that the bourbons and the estates that supported them have become so decadent that in some ways they got what they deserved but now we need to
0: fight these barbarians back. They fundamentally yeah, caused right. it. That's who he blames for the French yeah, revolution, is he the, the, the off of the
1: nobility. He doesn't see, like, the state of a republic, of their not being a sovereign as being a sustainable for any long period of time.
3: He thinks counter-revolution is inevitable. He's interested in that. I mean, like, he thinks about the prior example. He mentions Charles I, where it did happen that way. You have the removal of Charles I, who he actually says is more blameful and he doesn't say why than Louis, um, the 16th, I guess because he wasn't Catholic. But he says, like, that (laughs) you saw the return to like a homeostasis over time because he implies that Republican Puritan England is so messed up that there was no way but to return to homeostasis. I think we forget. That even a lot of liberals thought this. I mean, Voltaire even kind of thought this. Mm-hmm. Like that's why Voltaire was all up Catherine the Great's ass, is because then, like Maestro would
0: hate Voltaire. Yeah, you know, totally. He does. He rips on him.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, he does. so especially
3: He's not unique yeah. to Demestra. We see it as kind of unique, but like a lot of a lot of the yeah, it. Well, talk. About-
2: I think it's because basically the Maistre is representing what most people in the elite at a certain period of time for a very long time actually believed. And he's just basically the voice of a dying aristocratic elite that is, you know, being destroyed through the bourgeois revolutions and the industrial revolution. Yes.
3: Yeah, so, so in a way, when we think about that, it's hard to talk about, I mean, in a way he's a prototype for the, for the right, particularly the, you know, the altar and throne, right. But in another way, He's like his right doesn't even make sense in the modern world, like oh, yeah, that's you
2: know, what I was, yeah. Like, uh, the thing is, the Meister rejects mass politics, he rejects the, the whole French Revolution idea. So, the whole point of the French Revolution is that it invented mass politics and it made it so that the people could become part of the political life of the nation and you would have a sovereignty based on the people. The Meister is against his very idea, whereas fascism. You have to have mass politics to be able to have, you know, have a real reactionary movement I mean, in the modern capitalist world.
4: I mean, his aristocratic background is sort of questionable because his like grandfather was like I, I can't remember if it was like a shoe shiner or something dumb like that. Like
3: Oh yeah, he's quasi bourgeois. I mean that's the, that's the funny thing about him. He doesn't yeah. actually completely belong yeah. to the class he's defending, but that's not if you look at this time period, that's also not odd. Like, well, I'm just
2: saying, he absorbed the dominant ideology of his time. You know, your average reactionary peasant in Vendee, you know, in France, where there was you know a huge uprising of royalist peasants. If they were literate, they would probably write this.
0: Well, he um he does successfully predict the Bourbon Restoration, so he's obviously talking about something that has. Roots that you know that has legs, yeah. In the population,
2: well, I think the French Revolution was just such a radical level of change in such a short amount of time that it was bound to fall into a, a disequilibrium and eventually form a bonapartism. He notices that this revolution is so radical and it's zeal to overthrow everything that exists, it's not sustainable.
0: So, with reference to this concept of equilibrium, Jake, I want to push back the idea that he doesn't have a theory of history. He has an interesting response or like proto-response to a Hegelian view in that he sees history not as the Hegelian slaughter bench in which, you know, it's just one bloody thing after another and there's no rhyme or reason to it. He sees it as a very lawful river of blood that if for some reason there is an aberration, there's a period of peace. That it will be disrupted and it will go back, that that its history is violent, not because it is not lawful, but because it is.
1: And when I say he doesn't have a theory of history, what I mean is history is something where it moves across time. Whereas for him, there's this static sure, still sure. order that we will s- cyclically return to no matter what, right? Well, I so, think that's
2: because Meister can't comprehend the social realm. He sees everything as just natural. He doesn't see the social character of humans. He sees humans as savages and animals that basically follow the same patterns as anything else in nature. And this is obviously a pre-Darwinian understanding of
3: nature. Yeah, it takes well, a sin yeah. and turns it into something more like Thomas Hobbes, which is
4: actually quite weird. Yeah, I mean, Jake, what you're describing is basically a secular view of history, which is, like, common throughout the right, like, going from De Maistre through, like, spangler so it, it is a theory of history it's just a like, secular uh, one
2: the idea that there's an ascending phase and then a declining phase
0: yeah there is decadence here there yeah
3: decadence. ibn kadun
0: believes that I'm um, honestly hegel
2: I believes mean, it lenin be, lenin believes it the whole concept of imperialism is decadence you know, I mean,
0: the left-wing concept of decadence, like Hegel takes this us
3: into the left-wing tradition in a weird way. Like, particularly Marxist, we're not whiggish, right? We actually do think decline
0: is a real thing. That it bends is, people's minds. I don't understand why this is, but very frequently it's like a debate short circuiter that you can believe in progress. This is non-linear. People are like, well, doesn't that mean you could just be living in a two hundred year period of reaction? It's like, well, yeah, that's times that the breaks. Like
2: yeah yeah that's what i think too is that there's such thing as progress it's just that history doesn't automatically move in a progressive direction and so there's periods of regression and there's periods of progression and there's even periods of both and there's a dual-sided aspect to things in history there's parts of it that can be both regressive and progressive It's more complicated than just as wiggish linear view of history. But most people can tell that things are more complicated than that,
0: you know? Yeah, everyone except for, like, you know, political theorists and critical theory people. like.
2: Yeah, I guess liberals. But, yeah. Anyway. I thought the part where he was just talking about the violence of human history, I think it was in Chapter 3.
0: Yeah, this even, is arresting.
2: He just, like, describes, his, has his passage where he just goes on and on about all these different bloody conflicts. He talks about the Crusades, also about the German Peasants' War, talks about the Seven Years' War. His view of human history is just basically a bunch of people slaughtering each other.
5: If you go back to the birth of nations, if you come down to our own day, If you examine people's at all possible conditions from the state of barbarism to the most advanced civilization, you always find war. From this primary cause and from all the other connected causes, the effusion of human blood has never ceased in the world. Sometimes blood flows less abundantly over some larger area. Sometimes it flows more abundantly in a more restricted area, but the flow remains nearly constant. But from time to time, the flow is augmented prodigiously by such extraordinary events as the Punic Wars, the triumvirates, the victories of Caesar, the eruption of the Barbarians, the Crusades, the wars of religion, the Spanish succession, the French Revolution, etc. If one had a table of massacres similar to a meteorological table, who knows whether, after centuries of observation, some law might not be discovered, Buffon has proven quite clearly that a large percentage of animals are destined to die a violent death. He could have apparently have extended the demonstration to man, but let the facts speak for themselves.
2: And this is always going to be the case, and there's, go- there's I, going to be periods of pause in the slaughter, but it's it's generally always going to be slaughter.
1: I mean, his point was basically, you know, there's always a war going on somewhere, you know, the idea of like a peaceful, egalitarian society is like a mirage to him. Because that's the, there's always a war going on somewhere. Conflict and war is like intrinsic in the human condition. There's there's no way out of it. So what's
2: interesting though is that he's saying this in response to the French Revolution, which kind of gives you this idea that there was this spirit of the French Revolution. Of this kind of utopian world that they were trying yeah. to create where they were trying to actually well, create he, a he, world he, he, without war and class
1: inequality he, he he was just kind of... he's kind of dark catholic hegel like <laughs> well he mocks this idea i guess that was going around that everyone was a sovereign a democracy but he's like well uh not everyone's in government one representative represents thousands if not tens of thousands of people you know so that's complete bullshit. like for it to for you to have real democracy everybody would have to like represent themselves directly. I half think he has a point about that. Actually, that is like a problem in a long-running debate. Like on the far left, is it's an know,
2: anarcho- the anarcho-the ba- argument actually?
1: It's a councilist yeah, argument. Yeah,
2: it's the <laughs> argument against representative democracy. Right, and but for him,
1: for him, that idea is so absurd that he can only pose it as a way to eliminate the idea of like suffrage. You know?
3: Yeah, I yeah. mean, I did feel like Bob Black actually sort of ripped off the best right when I was reading this. Like I was like, oh, I see where he gets <laughs> that point, and that point, and that. Yeah, point. But his
2: alternative to having elected leaders is to having an unelected leader who has absolute power. So it's it's yep. just all right. There's flaws about King representation. There is mediation and representation between the people and the state itself. But the point is to reduce the effect that that mediation has on allowing representatives to effectively you know, meet the needs of you know, their constituents. And hey,
3: Rosa, do you know how much effect he actually had on czarist autocracy? Because Tsarist autocracy always fascinated me because it did not make concessions the way even German autocracy had. Um, did Demestra play any role in that? I mean, I'm always fascinated by the way like the, the Russian right sh- keeps on showing up in history, I mean, even with fascists. Um, so it, do you have any like hard links
4: there? I got it from the uh, Isaiah Berlin lecture.
3: I mean, I love the Isaiah Berlin in this regard, but I just don't know. Like, why is he advising the Russian czar? It's a different form of Christianity. What does he have in stake there? Well, and-
1: everyone's got to make a living.
4: yeah and also his christianity is not particularly consistent like this was pointed out before but he was a mason it goes completely against the catholic faith his appeals to catholicism are like really incredibly superficial he goes against Mm -hmm. the universality that's like at Mm -hmm. the heart of christianity he just like utterly denies like the value of like any any human being just like based on how they're all savages it goes entirely against christianity so like
2: like, he mocks the missionary that goes to the colonized
1: person and sees them as a human instead of just a brute savage that they are he isn't interested in theological questions he's interested in defending the monarchy that's what his entire like project of this piece is he is a fervent ardent partisan for the institution of monarchy And that's what everything kind of seems to be in service towards in terms of his argument. Now, the way that this is the paradigmatic case of the modern far right is the
0: ultra-traditionalism is an instrumental ruse. When you examine religious fundamentalism, you realize how symptomatic of modernity it is. Like if you haven't had a victory of secularism over the governing culture of a society or something like that, you just don't really get – you don't need fundamentalism. Yeah, like, but
3: Demastra is, is actually weirdly explicit about that, right? Like, yeah, of course. I mean, Demaster like actually outright says like we. I mean, he kind of implies that the French Revolution is an agent of eventual God. I mean, I love his description of the French
0: Revolution. <coughs> it, it is yeah. so interesting. He's, well,
2: the way I look at it is, he sees the 18th century basically has an aristocracy that becomes decadent and corrupted by Enlightenment ideals and reason, and it loses its rooting in the traditional bloodline it becomes more and more separated from tradition and corrupted by reason and so the french revolution is like god unleashing the mob upon them as a revenge for their sinfulness it's like a because it, it fits in with his whole idea of just world history as this eternal cleansing blood ritual
0: catholic pat robertson as geopolitics is what that is <laughs> the best part of this is his view of the french revolution As, again, another proto-Hegelian moment, like, truly dialectical, (laughs) even an analytical Marxist understands that, like, actions that produce undesired consequences,
1: that's, you know, the bread and butter of the cunning of history, right? Well, that's also the bread and butter of conservatism, like, that's their argument against everything. The basic conservative thing is, well, look, these institutions are old, and therefore stable, and therefore better than anything else. And even if something was better, it wouldn't be worth it to transition to it, because it would disrupt the daily, you know, circulation. Well, what of does
3: Adorno say about that, that everybody wants to stall the dialectic? It's not that conservatives don't see the dialectical attention, it's that they just don't want it to progress.
2: It's not just a defensive order with the maestro. He wants to fight for reaction with the same intensity as mm-hmm. the jacobins because he sees that there is an internal struggle basically and that order needs to be protected from internal corruption you know from communism and democracy and, and reason and reason and all these things <laughs> and so he thinks that you need to actively wage you know a struggle against you know these corrupting influences yeah. that bring you away from natural law so in that way he definitely is a proto-fascist
0: against philosophy his notion of philosophy is basically identical to plato's notion of poets (laughs) well no it's it's more like nick land's conflation of nihilism and protestantism and capitalism and modernity all into like one concept like that's what he's calling philosophy that atomizing force
4: his main beef with democracy is the idea that you can build a stable government based on reason, like other than like just a general hate hatred for the masses, which he has also, but like the idea that a government can be stable and based on reason is just an utterly absurd concept because like fundamentally like the most stable governments in his mind are monarchies. And the idea of monarchy doesn't really make much sense when you actually think about it. For like a few seconds because what guarantees that the next person that comes along you know your heir is going to be stable it's going to be an actually good leader there's nothing there but when he compares like monarchist nations to a specific example that he gives is like poland poland is just a miserable shithole that's going through continuous violence but they're trying to build a stable society based on rationality Whereas the monarchies are completely irrational, but yet they're still stable. Real stable orders are built on a fundamental irrational core of just mysticism and like tradition.
1: Right, like things that are mystifying uh, inspire fear in people and fear leads to obedience, right? To him, it's almost like if something is transparent and rational, that's actually a problem because anybody can see there's nothing at the base of it. And that's what connects him to modern conservatism, because what the modern conservatives want to produce is like the mystification and irrationalism of the market and of the value form, and... (laughs) No, I'm serious. That's that's quite a jump. That's a, strike, quite a jump. I'm
3: gonna be honest, like he's Isaiah a aristocratic anti-bourgeois reaction. I mean, no, but
2: Isaiah Berlin sees value in him, and Isaiah Berlin is definitely a big influence on modern political thought.
1: I think that's kind of like why the Austrian economists don't even want to like think about like macroeconomics because you need like the mystification of the market and of capitalist society in right. order to Well, keep you need religion.
2: His big follower is Maurice bars, the french far-rightist i don't know if i'm saying his name right but he was an atheist and he basically thought that you needed to have catholic-like theocracy basically to maintain order even though he was an atheist right well i mean george boyderson
3: basically argues that
2: he just has these a priori beliefs that cannot be questioned because they must be true because they are the law of nature and nature is truth it's 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 kind of the weird
1: circular logic. And you know, he he sees things. himself as the opposite, though. Like, he sees himself as, like, you know, pointing to, like, the concrete things that everyone see, can see and observe, as opposed to, like, these Enlightenment rationalists who are, you know, drawing, like, these a priori conclusions from, like, abstract models and things like yeah, that. Yeah,
4: like, I hate to bring up Jordan Peterson again, but Jordan Peterson does almost the same thing, but with, like, Evo psych and, like, bad... Jungian psychology essentially like
3: they've
1: never met a naturalistic fallacy they don't like (laughs) well honestly I mean this is definitely like way better than Jordan Peterson this this I mean this is this actually is like somewhat coherent And we've had a lot of people tell us to read Jordan
0: Peterson, but God, we have so many dank reactionaries to read. Why would you read that boring fuck? Get advice from. I have
3: to go to a conference about him. Fuckers. Oh man, that sucks.
0: But listeners, I know we got reactionaries out there. Don't at me. All right, like if you. Are gonna take life advice from a reactionary? Please be more interesting, be a hipster about this. Don't yeah, did, go the Peterson route. Take it from Alexander Dugan, take it from Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, um, oh, don't
1: don't take your shit from the first person you saw pop up on YouTube.
4: Right. Yeah. Right. Right, yeah. right. Christopher Lash, like basically yeah. literally anyone other than Jordan Peterson.
0: Look, the keywords to your life adventures has gotta be rare and dank, okay?
2: Problem is though, is that people always do go from Jordan Peterson being like, oh, "I'm a national Bolshevik now" or something. <laughs> do yeah.
3: they? Is, is, is it? It's not that much of a jump from Jordan. I Peterson. mean, like, let's be honest though. Jordan Peterson's really trying to make people neoconservatives. His, his right. methodological individualism is like Alan
0: Broom on crack. Right, I mean, right. right. Like, he's he's really more of a bridge in the other direction. That if you, oh, I like fascist myths, but I want a job. Yeah, It's also
1: just for people who have, like, academia is corrupt and stuff, so they've never, like, heard of the humanities or anything, and so when he's like, oh, <laughs> look look how the Lion King actually draws from myths throughout time, you're like, holy shit, <laughs> I never looked at things this way before, this is amazing. I mean, that's why you can
2: get people like Joe Rogan on board, oh, Joe yeah. Rogan isn't even, like, a particularly reactionary guy, but Jordan Peterson just has to go on and talk about, like, trippy uni and shit, and oh, then yeah. Joe Rogan. Yo, man, this is really fascinating.
0: I, I really want to see Demisha go
1: on Joe Rogan. <laughs> That's yeah. what I want to see. but actually probably be a really good talk show guest. He, oh,
0: he would. To... He would just take a huge hit and be like, there's yeah. nothing but violence in
1: the universe. It would be like the time Alex Jones was on there. Yeah. He, he basically smoked and started singing John Jacob Jingleheimer. It would just be... <laughs> it would be the weirdest shit ever. This is not a joke, Joe. Anyway, we're in the weeds here. It makes sense to me that there is this line of conservatism from him... To the present because you know capitalist society produces its own forms of mystification he doesn't necessarily like foresee at this point that's why you can still have like deeply reactionary arguments but be in like favor of the market okay and so just, like, return to kings
2: i can mm-hmm. see i can see what you're saying because in his era he's trying to enforce the dominant mystifications of that class society sure. which is the, the divine right of kings in the modern era conservatism's goal is to uphold the mystifications of capitalism in order right. to maintain...
3: Vitality. That should make us feel good, though, because if that's true, then capitalism
0: doesn't have a whole lot longer. But I don't know that that's actually true. One of the reasons that I wanted to trot this out is that the comparison to Edmund Burke is really, I think, enlightening, no pun intended, ha-ha. Edmund Burke is like, well, liberalism, yeah you know, I've seen the top of the mountain. It's got some okay stuff. This is really nothing to write home about. Um, we shouldn't, like try to destroy it. We should just, you know, try to preserve traditions. And towards the end of the book, when he starts attacking these cowards that don't want to restore the bourbons right now, that's the kind of people that he's spitting at. Those are the people that he's really directing this book at. It's an invective being like, what the fuck is the matter with you? Why are you just going to let these people, look, these people have already done enough. You're right that we had to wait for long enough for the people to long for the restoration of the bourbons. But what's the matter with you? Let's go. Yeah, he always
3: appeals
2: to the murder of the king and how this gang of Jacobins just did this disgusting act of murdering the king. It's really crazy how obsessed he is of the killing of the king. And it kind of makes you understand why the Jacobins had to do it because it had the psychological aspect in that society. Well, In it gets into,
1: like, this weird, like, almost, like, fan fiction-y thing where he's like, yeah, and then the king will come back, and the, p- the people yeah. will love him, and he'll love the people, and, you know, like, you could just, you can just hear him beating off, like, as... Yeah. Bro-
2: what did the Jacobins say that they had to kill the king to show that he was a human like anyone else, or something yeah. like
0: that? Robespierre, to this man, was
3: Satan. Yeah, but he was also promulgating a, like, weird pagan cult. I mean, it's one of the mistakes that Jackman actually make is when they, like, kill all the Enrages because they want their cult of reason to maintain it.
2: But, yeah, like you have the Enrages who are basically atheists or just very radically anti clerical They are very secular. They just want to destroy all religious influence in the state. And then you have Robespierre's faction, and they want to create a state religion, a cult of the supreme being. He calls it a cult of reason. It's actually similar to... Uh, what uh, Bogdanov and Lunacharsky believed in in the Bolshevik party of God building. They believed that they had to kind of like create a new God for the new socialist order. And so Robespierre kind of has this idea that they have to create this cult of the supreme being and this kind of rational religion of humanity. And it pops up in socialist thought quite a bit.
0: Yeah, that's exactly the kind of, like, Esperanto like, rootless tradition attempt that he hates. You can't just make a new tradition. You just can't do that. Yeah, the
2: thing is, is Robespierre is trying to destroy all of the traditions of the past you know, thousands, thousands of years and build something completely new based on all these brand new enlightenment ideas from the 18th century. Yeah. And that's just so risky. That's just, it's like, no, no, no. We've been doing things this way for so long. We, we it's been fine. Let's just keep going, going away. Yeah. Why mess with things too much? Because it's just too risky.
0: Yeah. This is the modernist Promethean
4: impulse.
2: Yeah. this That's basically it. Like, we just don't want to take that risk because it can lead to chaos. And look what it did, what happened in France. People all rose up and massacred people. We need to keep these forces at bay and maintain order. And tradition has always done this the best because it's what's existed up till now.
0: This is a text that's emblematic of the birth of modernity, but it's also very much against it. (laughs) It is against modernity. What I think is interesting is that this text gets some predictions right, like uh, the restoration of the Bourbons was going to happen, and it'll be glorious.
2: Yeah, but in the world historical level it's
0: obviously wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um Because but,
2: ultimately world aristocracy is defeated by you could say the US Civil War and then completely extinguished by World War One.
0: Right. So that's the most interesting part is that when he makes fun of the secular revolutionaries for trying to fucking make new holidays like that's going to work like anyone's going to fucking celebrate bastille day who the fuck's even heard of a steel day so uh, i mean it worked it worked like people actually did make some new traditions and when i look at the united states especially and you see all this saltiness being like you can't have a large republic it's like a square circle it's just a contradiction in terms people are idiots this is gonna fucking never work well no most austral leftists also believe the republics are not
3: Viable political forms because the people are stupid because of corruption by capitalism. Are they're just stupid? I don't. I don't know. Yeah, exactly that actually
2: makes that's a good point because I was trying to argue this with uh, certain like ultra left, and uh, they were saying that you couldn't have a mass party with universal suffrage because the majority of the proletariat is too stupid and uneducated, basically. But he was also trying to argue for this mass council democracy. It was a really incoherent view, but it was just this this idea that, you know, the party can't substitute itself for the people, but the party has to be this elite because people are too stupid. So it it just doesn't make any sense. You have to have some kind of faith that ordinary people can become trained to bring politics into their own hands. And, I mean, you could say that you basically have to take that on faith because in revolutionary situations, it has been really chaotic and brutal when people have tried to kind of take power into their own hands and build new institutions.
1: He actually kind of has, like, this weirdly meritocratic thing where he's like, well, anybody can rise under the monarchy. Like, it's equal opportunity, basically. That was really weird. Because, like, the ultimate distinguished person is the monarch. He can confer distinction upon people in a greater way than you can in, like, a non-monarchical society. This might be dumb, but it'd be kind of interesting to, like, put him in a time machine and, like, bring him to, like, modern times and, like, have him sort of observe the world. And I think if he did, he would probably see... Some of the things he was talking about have been, like, transmuted into, like, capitalist society, right? Where if we don't have monarchs, we at least have celebrities, you know? And where there are monarchs now, the monarchs are celebrities. (laughs) And that sort of has, like taken the function of like these are the great socially distinguished people like you know you can y- you're you become more distinguished merely by associating with them right and shit like that how would he feel about that isn't that like debased isn't that like un- oh yeah he would see the whole thing is totally debased like but you would see how capitalist society like met certain like aspects of these functions that he's talking about but it would take yeah. a while for it to get there
2: yeah, he is an anti capitalist. You can see a lot of his critiques as basically critiques of the kind of market atomization and individualization of capitalism. But it was yeah. the but before the that is, really
1: kicked off, though, so he couldn't.
2: Yeah, it. But it's still. Yeah, the romantic anti-bot
3: sentiment is, is actually a thing on the right. Still is, although not yeah. nearly as much. And this is really the
2: beginning of that anti-bourgeois right-wing sentiment. I mean, you see it in Dugan. You see it in a lot of the a lot of the modern far right seems to actually be pretty third positionist. So there is this kind of anti-bourgeois romantic aspect a lot. Right.
1: But because, because he's such a product of his time like what's most telling and most interesting is what he doesn't talk about, right? Like he doesn't talk about the material basis of society. He barely talks about like the tax crises that like launched these revolutions in the first place. You know, he doesn't talk about he sneers at those kind of causal explanations. He thinks that Yeah, that's, that's
2: reason- completely
0: fucking besides the point.
2: That's reason, like people don't revolt because of, you know, tax crises or whatever. You know, people revolt, yeah. be, you know, for completely
0: irrational reasons. Yeah, and, I don't want to hear about the a, assing that. Don't tell me a, it was the assing that. <laughs> I remember there's
2: this one part where he's like people, you know, line up and kill each other for no good reason on command. But then they'll riot and, against the government over most pointless, you know, tax laws. Yeah,
1: just food. They just want food. <laughs> that's the thing, like he's, he really is like so completely blind to, you know what I mean? Like, he's like, we got, dude, monarchy, The system's great. It's like, yeah, fucking easy for you to say, dude, like you're, you know, you're high on the hog in that system, you know? And it, what's most telling is everything he doesn't talk about. Like, that's where all the holes are. Like in-
2: Yeah, it's completely anti-materialist in a way that not even the far right can get away with anymore. Julius evil is just kind of doing what he's doing here, but less intelligently. <laughs>
3: Julius Evola yeah, was, wasn't a proto-New Ager, De would be his
4: idol. Yeah, I was about to say even, like, De Maistre's criticism of military rule is similar to, like, Evola's critique of fascism because essentially it wasn't based on real traditions. Military rule and fascism weren't based on, like, real, already established traditions.
2: Yeah, he makes a point that in the counter-revolution... The real source of authority that needs to be reestablished is the authority of the military. And that's because in aristocratic societies, the military was based off of this whole caste system, basically. Like the military were the elites of the society, essentially.
1: Yeah, I feel like the reason he likes God so much is because God makes the sovereign and God patches all the holes in his theoretical edifice.
0: <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the divine seal. Which yeah. I kept translating in my head to the mandate of heaven, like the Chinese mandate of heaven. Like this is a myth that transcends cultures in a Joseph Campbell kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> is that God smiles upon this hereditary monarchy?
2: Well, the religion also has a material function in these societies as a mm-hmm. redistributive mechanism, basically, because you have independent producers producing for themselves, religious entities do tax people. But they often serve as a way to kind of funnel the wealth as a charity service to maintain the existence of the uh, poorer classes. In Carlyle's critique of the French Revolution, he actually complains about how the attack on religion created a huge lack of charity for the poor, basically. That was a big critique. Yeah, that the I poor think the Maestro says because, something similar. Yeah, it's something that becomes part of the revisionist historiography of the French Revolution. This was really interesting to read in light of the historical
3: arguments over the French Revolution.
0: Do we want to talk about his idea about how the counter-revolution will happen? Yeah,
3: let's talk about the counter-revolution parts of this, because that's actually fascinating. If you think about it from the concept of Catholicism, the
0: counter-revolution doesn't entirely make sense. But he is explicitly theorizing counter-revolution. He literally uses the term oppressed and oppressors to refer to the supporters and opponents of god and the king
1: yeah he basically argues like the, the oppressed can't be uh, morally wrong and that's why you shouldn't fear the restoration because yeah because uh, we're better than you we're not petty like that we would never do
0: that the king is so sensitive he can't even do revenge oh he's just so
3: noble i mean it's interesting because he basically is arguing for christian points here which he wasn't earlier and uh-huh. that's like, fascinating double movement that he's doing where yeah he's making christianity much darker and yet here he's like but if we were enlightened well, of course we'd have preferential treatment for the poor
0: duh that's what jesus says i mean holy shit does the history of class society really bear out his fuck forked tongue here
2: there's this kind of attitude that the poor are debased And so if you allow the masses to have too much influence at the basis society and the basis human relations into this materialistic, rational, selfish form, whereas... You need to have this higher religious ideal to hold society together, that keeps an elite and keeps the poor in their places. And you
1: need to have places for everybody with certain duties and you know reciprocal responsibilities, and that if you don't have like that kind of system in place, you basically get in game theory world where everyone's only thinking on like material. Well, yeah, what you
2: have in replace of that whole web of feudal style relations of duty and dependence and tribute and whatnot, it becomes a market. It becomes dependence on competing in the market for survival. And that is a way more uncertain and chaotic world than just being a peasant who pays a tribute to your lord every crop cycle or whatever. So it's an appealing argument in a way to people who see on the surface some of the problems of capitalism.
3: You know, I mentioned off-air about this guy who wrote for a magazine I once went for called Red Demastre. There are are people who
1: are adjacent to the left who find this actually oddly appealing. What do they find appealing about it specifically? Because I don't – like, I mean, this is a breezy read, and the guy's a lively writer – But uh, there wasn't much in this where I was like, oh, yeah, this is. it's
3: a mixture of decolonialization, as we were talking about earlier, but also this sort of idea of, like, an aristocratic anti-bourgeois alliance with the working class. There are people who really believe this. Even Counterpunch's publishing, like, Criteria until about two years ago was totally along
1: these lines. Wait, how would you have, like, an aristocratic working class, like, alliance now? (laughs) Because fuck the bourgeoisie, man. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I, it would be like a fascist left alliance or where something.
1: Where are the aristocrats though? I like, think the closest this, thing
4: would be like national capitalists against yeah. international capital. like well, yeah. cock shot goes into that.
3: Nazbols actually like Demestre and they also like Stalin. So I mean, it's not completely insane that this has happened before.
2: well, yeah, it makes sense because the is arguing for a strong, powerful authority figure that subjugates the people to their needs. And you know, that's Stalin sounds good if you believe in
0: that. Kind of. I mean, the maestra almost has a Hegelian concept of history. He calls it providence. And providence is this funny way that the revolution is going to completely purge all of the disgusting sickness that caused it. And then will lay the groundwork so that a noble king that did not have it in his heart to have to do the horrible thing that you would have had to do can... Get to ruling, kindly, and so what he would think of Stalin might be something like Avanti, barbarian. <laughs> like yeah, you, man, wow, you really had to clean out a lot of Russia, you know. He and he so has a this, lot
2: of reactionaries feel about Stalin, basically. What? Wow, like Stalin was actually a Russian nationalist who, you know, came to power in this decrepit Jewish like system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the they really States. do. Yeah, people yeah. really do believe that.
3: Arcos Press has written like three books on that topic, which is weird if you actually know Russian history. You're like, bullshit. But uh, Francis Jockey was really into that, too. I mean, like if you look at the fascist international, they took Stalin as a model.
2: Well, they sided with the USSR against the USA because they saw the USA as um, becoming more of a homogenizing, globalizing force
3: than the ussr here's the scary thing sometimes i'm not entirely sure they were wrong because if you look at orthodox christianity in the ussr and particularly the reactionary form of it that exists there were they wrong about that i mean it seems like the ussr actually weirdly protected them i mean dugan makes this point yeah
1: yeah the, the ussr never put anything as insidious as mcdonald's like out into the world in every place in every culture in every country yeah, I can think of no perverting influence caused
0: by the USSR. One thing that de Maistre says that in, in reference to this tree of liberty that needs to be watered with blood sometimes, on the bottom of page 28 in our version. The tree of order. <laughs> so only blood can restore the soul's strength from depletion, from an excess of civilization. And in truth, the tree may perish if the trunk is cut or if the tree is pruned. But who knows the limits of the human tree? What we do know is that excessive carnage is often allied with excessive population. So, for example, he's basically
1: Peter Thale of Catholic reactionaries. I mean, what did we say yeah. here? Thomas Malthus. Peter yeah, the weirdly Malthusian or proto-Malthusian, I guess, argument. Or what? when was Malthus? I... Was Malthus About the it same it?
3: time, actually. Okay,
1: yeah, the contemporary, okay.
3: Malthus is more bourgeois than Demastra, but, I mean, it's interesting because Demastra is like the tree of anti-liberty more than the tree of liberty. I mean, but he's making similar arguments to even Jefferson, but for a completely opposite point.
0: Well, liberty to him is submission to divine authority. That's true freedom.
1: Well, it's also that he just thinks like the ideas of liberty – are just bullshit you know and like people are technically more free under like a peaceful monarchical government than they are under an unstable short-lived uh, rotating series of republics and constitutions Which, yeah it's like common sense in the UK well
2: here is the argument though I'll say that if you're a serf and if you're in feudalism you have this religious system in this community of the village and these religious obligations you know you have a society where you know your place you you know where you belong you you are stuck there but you know where it is and you can navigate your life just through the common folklore and traditions and capitalism and modernity destroys that and replaces it with reason which is you know what the fuck you know what do we believe we, we don't reason is you know a very difficult thing to grapple because we don't understand everything You know, religion provides an answer for everything. Reason makes it so that you have to figure everything out, and it creates this chaos. And so the Maestro sees it's just not worth it. It's not worth letting that worm come in and introducing that you know kind of virus of freedom.
1: Right, because well, and he has a point in a sense because there are a lot of questions that aren't just math. You know, there's like there are a lot of things where people thinking rationally are going to come to opposite conclusions and both have compelling arguments. So, and that's something that he kind of mocks like pretty frequently. When he talks about like how how well anyone could come up with a constitution. Anyone could, you know, come up with an ideal yeah. form of government, but I mean, he it, uh, almost convincing. anyone. Yeah, but he makes a pretty
0: convincing anti-utilitarian argument before utilitarianism even really exists. He doesn't think that just anyone can draw up a constitution. What he thinks explicitly is that. You don't know if a regular person could or could not. Maybe they're good at this. But what you know for sure is that if somebody does political theory, they cannot do constitutions. So you do not want political theorists writing your program, (laughs) in short, Um, which I thought was funny. He thinks that doing theory and writing constitutional law
1: are mutually exclusive skills. One necessarily excludes the other. Well, his idea is like the 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 true constitution just emerges out of the traditions and customs of the society, and it's just like this org- organic thing that that happens. And his it's not favorite. something you can yeah like exactly. Design. If
2: you're a political theorist, you're thinking about shit too much, and that's muddying things up. And it should be something that's basically divinely intuitive. There's intuition; it's irrational. And trying to make everything rational is just it makes the world too complex and too dangerous and too scary.
0: Yeah. His favorite constitution is the Spartan constitution, which is to say an oral set of traditions, not a a written law at all.
3: Well, I mean, the British constitution is an oral set of traditions, not a written law at all.
0: This is true. And when I read stuff like this, I am reminded of pretty common sense conservative arguments for monarchy, which is, you know, again, not like limited to reactionaries like there are liberal conservatives that look at the united kingdom and say yeah we don't really need to overthrow the monarchy here well
2: yeah but the Meister is saying more than just though the monarchy is okay he's saying that there needs to be a struggle waged against the enemies that are introducing modernity into our stable equilibrium society
1: people are still pretty monarchist too like Remember when like Jeremy Corbyn like didn't tweet happy birthday to the Queen or whatever, and they were like they were hounding him for hours. Like it's been four hours and he hasn't said anything. You know well, what I this mean? is
3: where the libertarians also write about the imperial presidency because it's like a substitute for monarchy on our part. Even like left liberals get into this shit.
1: Well, yeah, you see it in our politics mm-hmm. now, definitely. I mean, you know, look at like the uh, funeral of John McCain, and it's there's this huge piece of political theater, yes, queen. veneration, you know.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, I think that the presidency d- is kind of a residue of monarchy. I think that the executive of the state in capitalism can take many different forms, and I d- what really matters in capitalism is that you have an executive that can enforce a rule of law. And so you can have monarcho because that's what basically what anarcho capitalism is—is monarchy. Because basically, if you had instead of you know states, corporations, you basically would just have like a you know a corporation appointed this head of state instead of a hereditary monarchy. Yeah. But in the end, yeah. it's still basically the same system.
3: I mean, Hans Hermann Hot makes this point, right? That that basically manorialism and feudalism are pretty much proto capitalist in the sense that, you know, one person owns everything and they can make the decisions, yay, you don't need a board of trustees, Great. Capital. Yeah, Yeah.
2: exactly. It just centralizes all the authority and gets rid of the nasty parts of parliamentarism and debate, and the government can just get to doing what it needs to do, which is enforcing property rights.
4: Yeah, and you would be able to choose from which corporate health state that you want to live in because the patchwork. Although freedom of movement would be limited. Yeah, so, so you don't get to choose over.
3: that because according to Hopp, the sovereign actually, because he owns everything, actually does decide that. You see a really regressive
4: element of libertarianism in this. Even other libertarians freak out about it. There is sort of like a tension between like this reactionary continental right that's like expressed by like de Maestra and like reactionary tradition leading into fascism and then – there's this sort of liberal tradition that essentially comes as like sort of a conservative wing of the Enlightenment.
2: Well, yeah, there is a tension between this kind of anti-capitalist traditionalist right that really values tradition and values collectivism versus this Anglo tradition of the right that's more social Darwinist in its views about race and is more about values competition in markets and is very critical of collectivism
3: so we say Berkey and conservatism is in this weird way more bourgeois and demestre is more just flat-out aristocratic
2: yeah he's just a flat-out reactionary i think it's like i can see how you know in the birth of fascism you had these revisionist socialists basically who were looking for non-marxist forms of revolutionism sorel for example he came to completely reject the values of the French Revolution. And so someone like the Maestra kind of pointed the way forward for a non-Marxist form of like nationalist revolutionism in France. And so that's why a lot of proto-fascism I think is related to the Maestra because in France that's really where fascism ideologically developed. For groups like Cirque Proudhon and Action France.
5: (laughs)
4: This sucks. (laughs) Yeah, it really sucks. (laughs) This sucks more than anything that has ever sucked before.
3: Fascism is a way of trying to marry this with modernity in a strange way. And I think uh, ZF Sternhell's dead on on this. Yeah,
2: exactly. Well, ZF Sternhell... You know, he was kind of saying that counter-enlightenment tradition and the maestro is the beginning of his counter-enlightenment tradition. And fascism is an attempt of this counter-enlightenment tradition to react to the socialist movement. And I think that's really what makes fascism different from traditional reaction because it mimics the forms of the socialist movement. Like if you read about this stuff, you know, like the fascists basically say straight up, yeah, we copied all of the Marxist methods of organizing, you know, having youth groups, having party schools, having a party movement, having a militia and working in the unions. We copied all these tactics, but we did them under the program of national socialism.
0: Just to elaborate on Donald's point, even the fascies themselves, the way that they were being used in the Italian context was being pushed by socialists before it was claimed by the ultranationalists. The fasces being the root word for fascism.
2: Yeah, the fascists were in Italy initially just neighborhood councils where people would come together to you know do things. It was basically councils of action. It's it's kind of a weird, uh, almost ultra left kind of idea. You know, form councils. In Italy yeah. did have this weird tradition of you know forming these neighborhood councils to mobilize people to meet, especially in the rural areas. So yeah, the word fascists did have. A meaning in Italy before fascism took over. And so fascism kind of portrayed itself as the true populist collectivism in a way.
0: Yeah, the fascist, like old iconography, had like bundles of sticks, which I think is like literally what fascism I, I think. Yeah. Mm, it's the metaphor, it's, it's very deep. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but I think, I don't know, some people probably would question the maestro's relationship to fascism and say that he's too much of an aristocrat to be a proper fascist, and the gap between the two is too intense.
0: The question is, how important is it that fascists are anti-modern? That's what I see. Because I think if you see anti-modern, like, pro-hierarchy thought, you can broadly say is right wing. And then those that are actively so are reactionary. Right. And so in that way I can see the relation that I was giving Jake a hard time about before. That, you know, the contemporary bourgeoisie has an analogous wing that has this reactionary idea to kind of get at the central question of of why I was thinking about this text. There really isn't much of an organized left to target. Like, there are some, like, progressive tendencies in society that people feel like is a submerged communist conspiracy, but that doesn't count, and that's not a left that you can have fascism against.
2: Yeah, that's that you, what I was... There's
0: no revolution to counter.
2: That's what I've been thinking, is that basically modern-day fascism basically exists as a revanchism against the bright gained by women and non-whites in... And Post 1945 era because there's no actual revolution to happen, and so the far right makes up this conspiracy that these advances in democratic rights are part of some communist conspiracy of the cathedral and they need to be, you know, reversed basically through a counter revolution, through a violent, fascist, you know, Pinochet style regime. I don't know, whatever the all rights into now.
0: Yeah, I know. Does anyone else have thoughts about this idea about left and right in the way De Yeah, <laughs> No, not really, well, This huh? is
3: really hard to speak about, because in a way, De Maestra is setting the terms of left and right, but in another way, he's completely from a different set of it than we currently exist in. And his popularity is actually showing a failure of the Burkean right versus the, like, left-liberal-right category, because that's all within the liberal spectrum, whereas is coming completely outside of it.
2: Well, yeah, my my point earlier is basically that the the right is trying to rebel against... It sees itself, because these alt-right people talk about themselves like they're the Nazis fighting the communists. So they see themselves as fighting a revolution that doesn't exist. So really, it's just revanchism against democratic rights is what we see that really shapes the total nature of their ideology which just comes across as this kind of resentment that's why fascism isn't popping up now because there isn't an objective need for one so but just gets it as this kind of subculture of resentment
4: it usually blends into sort of a weird kind of liberalism through like libertarianism like it gets like in the american condition it gets like filtered into this sort of weird subculture have you guys heard of siege?
2: Yes. The book by James Mason.
4: Yeah. But essentially what he advocates for is like a decentralized network of terrorist groups. And essentially that is kind of a weirdly libertarian concept of like revolution in comparison to like traditional national socialist understanding of what, a national revolution would be like it's not a centralized party it's decentralized yeah. individualistic terrorists well i working. think that's
3: part of
2: the american right is that the american right kind of has a more
4: individualistic yeah kind of settler right. right but attitude. like it's blending together sort of
2: yeah because he uh, is you know a believer in national socialism the whole idea that there's this natural law that people need to adhere to
0: Well, here's where the left and right thing is a bit troubled in that ideology is a lot less systematic than it used to be. It used to be like a lot more plausible to speak of an ideology and that you could choose from like different ideologies. With the sort of end of history in the 1990s, quote unquote, like you could argue that really we just have a kind of cluster of things, ideology that props up the order because there's really one fundamental world order like that is the world system of capitalism. And you don't really get to choose flavors of ideology. There's really fundamentally one locus of defense for class society around the world now. And it does does have particular interest. That's
2: that's kind of like the unipolar theory.
0: I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that that is true politically. Yeah. yeah, There are
2: no power blocks. It's kind of what Dugan is saying, though, and that basically liberalism has become so hegemonic that the only way out is just everything that negates liberalism, no matter what it is. Whatever stands against global homogenization, via the world market is good, even if it's left one
0: this is very similar to like post left and primitivist thought.
2: That's why you see post left people often sympathizing with, you know, these weird primitivist terrorist groups and even fascists in some cases, because they see them as creating disorder in the
3: world and breaking down the homogenizing system of global capital. It sounds like you're invoking a certain internet troll named Abe Cabrera. <laughs> like, no. no, no. <laughs> you couldn't possibly I mean that's one of the people I'm thinking of for sure, yeah.
2: You know, Abe Cabrera and he he was a big the Maestra fan, I actually recall, which makes a lot of sense because he was a yeah. Catholic reactionary. But yeah, and he totally got into that crazy promo terrorist shit. But I can I see this as pretty compatible with that whole Dugan idea. Like someone once made the joke that you know Dugan in the Kremlin means, you know, unlimited funding for all non-state actors.
3: <laughs> well, I mean it's funny because Dugan's been smacked down by the Kremlin, but there is a a weird shift in his thought from a kind of uh national Bolshevism to a like pan-orthodox Eurasianism that is consistent with master more than it is with like classical fascism. Mm-hmm. yeah,
2: his latest thing is a uh, Eurasian youth movement or something like that. he's He's basically just arguing for the idea of a united Eurasian Empire and focusing less on on the whole Nazbol thing.
0: Something that's become apparent to me now that we've done that Fanon episode that argued that there had to be a stage of national consciousness to get beyond tribalism before you can get to an internationalist, socialist consciousness. This guy has like two minds about the nation, but I think the general reactionary thrust is is being skeptical of the homogenizing thing about the nation. De Maestro has a really complicated relationship to that, and I think his ambiguity on nationalism is what makes him so particularly flavorfully proto-fascist. Like there's a version of nationalism that he doesn't like that is dominant. But yeah. he 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 kind of even breaks with the ultra royalists by offering his hand to like the emigre populations in kind of like a French brotherhood sort of gesture. So it's kind daughters. of weird
2: is you have a civic nationalism of the Jacobins, which is this kind of idea of a social contract based on Rousseau. Different regions all become unified into one single republic that's unified around one law based on universal human rights. And so because in France you have all these different parcelized sovereignties and units of, you know, fiefdoms, nationalism kind of takes on a universalizing force because it's combining all these different parts. And so in the French Revolution, the reactionaries were called federalists because they were standing for their particular localities against the overall needs of the French nation. You see this in the Vendée of France, where there's a huge royalist uprising. So the whole process of France becoming a centralized nation is this kind of universalist humanizing idea of spreading universal human rights. But the Maestro has a view of the nation that's more integralist, I would call. Okay. I would call that like civic national, like Republican nationalism. Versus. But the Maestro is more of like an a, a integralist nationalism where like the nation is something that exists in the blood and, and soil, basically. That people yeah. have this sort of connection to the land that the peasant has, you know, a connection to the land that he's tilled over the centuries that his family has owned, that basically creates this organic connection between the people and the land mass. And I think the Mm -hmm. maestro finds that kind of nationalism appealing. The nationalism that would fuel kind of communitarian peasant revolts against the French Republic and the French Revolution.
0: He appeals to that concept by saying something along the lines of the Republican institutions were just put on the ground, but the monarchy was planted in the soil.
2: Because the monarchy, in a way, was a nation. I think it's been argued pretty convincingly that really nationalism doesn't develop with capitalism, per se, but it actually has preceding. It really starts developing with absolutism in the first absolutist centralized states. There's just this kind of myth of an organic nationalism that develops. He doesn't deny the existence of nations. He denies the existence that a nation can be formed by people coming together and creating a constitution. He thinks that, you know, nations are just natural tribal groupings, and it's just obvious what nation you're a part of, or what your grouping is. It's basic in-group, out-group, you know?
0: Yeah, I liked his description of what it would be like if there was a counter-revolution. Oh, would we have to get the people's consent? He's like, buddy, I'm gonna pull you aside. Let me just yeah. say this. Yeah. <laughs> Revolutions, fucking governance, none of these have anything to do with the masses at all. Like, just get that out of your head and come on, let's do the work here. This is what's going to happen. All right. This is how people are going to respond. Some guy's going to come in and go,
1: doo, doo, doo. attention, there is a king now.
0: And then yeah, it's all theater. That's it. And everyone will be like, well, all right, I guess there's a king now. That's basically yeah. his view of what the day after the revolution is like.
2: Well, there's this anti-democratic thing, you know, the complete disdain for democracy, which you find also in Bordigism, where it's like the party will be a complete minority when it imposes its dictatorship and the proletarian will not be revolutionary as a whole yet. You know, it's just this kind of idea that it doesn't matter if you have a majority of support or not. What matters is that you can force what's right onto the population and monarchy is what's right because it's what's natural. I actually do think that the whole right-left spectrum holds up and Babouf would be the tradition of communism, the far left, even further left and Robespierre, not just accepting the Enlightenment ideals, you know, of humanism, but accepting the idea that we need to create a, a communist society to fully realize that humanism. And I think that basically people who try to go post-left usually just end up either like really like soft left or far right. (laughs) Like that's kind of where it usually ends up when you look at someone's actual on the ground.
3: Or somehow they often end up weirdly both, which is really hard to imagine. But I've known people who are like anarcho click and night also far right, but at the same time,
0: Yeah, that's the quantum like anarcho liberal officer Bob black. That's the thing. I wasn't going to name names, but yes. (laughs) But these are the things that make it like difficult to wrap your mind around what's going on in the 90s because ostensibly we have this freedom from a burdensome, you know, insane tradition, right? And now we have the potential to move on from all those old I- ideas. And so we're moving on into undefined territory and and it's kind of fashy. It's kind of a little bit fashy. The 90s were a confusing time.
2: Well, remember, re-oriented. Hakeem Bey literally writes an ode to Gabriel D'Annunzio one of his books, the guy who preceded Mussolini in Italy as kind of the first fascist, he led an invasion of Fiume to create this artist republic. And so in this kind of search for new ideologies, there was already this kind of like, hmm, maybe there are parts of the far right that we can kind of pick from and add to our... You know,
1: eclectic understanding of the world yeah. that's free from all tradition. Yeah. I, th- really, I, th- I mean, thought that's what we're doing here. I thought that's
3: what was. No, was... no we're not doing that here. <laughs> I mean, it, but it's completely true. In the '90s is when, like, you know, Sam Francis somehow gets onto the Telios board, as does Paul Gottfried. I mean, it's it was a crazy time. Living through it, I remember it as a crazy
1: time. Man, if you remember it, you weren't really there, man. It's a crazy time. <laughs> yeah. Whatever,
2: millennial. <laughs> well, honestly, though, the 90s was an awesome period of just really edgy, you know, culture. that often veered the far right kind of in its yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And ideals, yeah, but it I was mean, pretty like, transgressive and true.
2: shocking. Adam Parfie, Farrell um, I mean, Farrell look House. at
3: Ferrell House Press. It's a weird conglomeration of, like, left and right that came out of the 90s. It really doesn't make sense now.
2: Yeah, they publish Ted Kaczynski, and then they publish, you know, just weird kind of far right. Yeah, Farrow House is an interesting example of that. And I think in the end, Farrow House, they were known for Jim Goad. He's the most famous person that's come out of that, and he is a prominent far-right spokesperson. But yeah, now. Michael
3: Monaghan, who was a borderline fascist, who somehow yeah. backed down from it. I mean, like, yeah, there's tons of those people, but... But in this weird way, the publisher who just died, and I literally just did a tribute episode to him on Parallax View. But Adam um, Murphy, right? He became an anti-Trumpist. So I mean, it's it was a weird yeah. time.
2: Yeah, Adam Parfy was actually a left-wing guy. He just had this obsession
3: with free speech, kind of well, what he yeah, wanted. Yeah, he to was be. a left-wing kind guy of about like, three fourths of the time, but he did speak at fascist conferences it, and endorsement weird so kind of weird. Yeah, Yeah,
2: it was this weird kind of transgressive thing where it's like, I'm left wing, but I'm so radical that I just want to put every idea out there on the table and expose everything. And, you know, it leads to some edgy stuff, basically. Well, I mean, it was
3: prototypical edgy. I mean, like the conspiracy theories he published, too, were a mixture of left and right wing. I mean, that's not surprising if you look at it from the framework of the 90s. Yeah. But the mestre showing back up is interesting. I mean, because if people look at Alain de Benis, then I kind of am hesitant to tell people to look at him because he's a good writer and also kind of evil. I mean, he's so is Carl of,
2: Schmidt, but he's, yeah. you should
3: read him anyway. But I mean, like Alain de Benis does the same thing in so much that he even picks up post-Keynesian and modern monetary theory and makes it right wing. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy what these guys
4: are able to do. That's kind of not hard to do. Yeah,
1: that doesn't seem like a very big leap to me. <laughs>
2: well, but I mean, it's all oh, in America. The mainstream right, at least, you know, if you're a conservative, you're all about free markets and lower taxes and stuff. But it now seems like there is this emerging new right that doesn't have that same free market dogma. And the
3: European right was kind of like ahead of the American right on that front. We're watching Macron get edged out by the National Front again because of that. Because there's a distrust of market dogma even amongst the right. And it's showing back up. And the left in France is so, you know, Mitterrand, like, castrated that it can't do anything.
2: Well, the thing is, too, if you go back to the Maistre, one of the things that Jacobins believed in was, you know creating free markets and busting up all the guilds and basically creating a national market like the opposition to jacobinism kind of would have like this anti-market anti-capitalist but regressive anti-capitalist form to it
1: well people were pissed too because they lengthened the week which meant fewer days off oh yeah totally
3: and back to like donald's point on that i don't want to pick on a fellow leftist in quotation marks but caleb maupin his wall got rated by Duganist on this point exactly because the Duganists were like doing this sort of anti-capitalist thing and he couldn't recognize the difference. Wow. I mean,
2: Caleb Maupin is a full Duganist right now. Isn't he? Didn't he have a
3: a talk? Oh, did he leave the WWP? I mean, like Caleb Maupin has
2: his own group. Like he has called youth and students for Liberty. And he well, I mean, actually, he spoke anyway, with Dugan recently. Like, he's openly like a Duganist now, basically.
3: Yeah, even someone like Tom O'Brien, who's my friend, and I do stuff with him at Kleiman, he couldn't tell when somebody who was anti-NATO was actually like a Russian Eurasianist war mm-hmm. troll because they talked a good left-wing game and then bait and switched on him. And he didn't even know that that's what they were doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what's scary today is that the opposition to capitalism kind of has a far-right touch to it. There's this worry that instead of a universalistic, humanist, emancipatory, communist anti-capitalism that is a reaction to modern capitalism, we have a a national, parochial, xenophobic form of anti-capitalism that really isn't even anti-capitalist in the end, but it at least channels the anti-capitalist drives of the masses.
3: If you're an edgelord Stalinist, you can easily get taken in by this stuff. I mean, very easily. Yeah, Yeah,
2: and I've been thinking that, you know, you have a lot of youth who are genuinely anti capitalist who get drawn into edgelord Stalinism because it's honestly the first thing you see online. And at some point, they're going to get over those politics. And so I think one thing we have to think about is we should try to reach over to them and get them to take up better politics so they don't get taken in the more Nazebal direction. Right. Because that is a worry. Like mean, communist ML, like Daddy Stalin thing. You can't keep doing that. That's
0: well, just not feasible. So that's the thing that kind of animates me at the moment, because it's questionable whether this shift in the Overton window. It's not questionable whether it's happening because it's happening, but it's questionable whether it's really going to produce anything beneficial at all. And the question is, okay, so we have socialists as sort of a mainstream tendency. And so now, of course, there's an emergent Twitter left of that, which is, you know, these communists. And apparently uh, there are a lot of MLs. And yeah, the question is, when you see a 14-year-old Maoist, was this all worth it? Like, what, (laughs) what happened? Like, how can this happen? For the most part, in these situations, I would just stare and mutter the horror the horror. However, I th- feel like, you know, dicking around on the internet, I have a particular expertise in depressing statist-oriented socialists on the internet. And I feel like there's a revolutionary purpose in that, you know, revolutionary theory is the enemy of revolutionary ideology and knows it. And that's sort of our job here. <laughs> Maybe that's why we're doing this stuff. I mean, we definitely are, are hard on the Stalinists, but, you know, yeah, I'm
2: hard on them ideologically, but I'll still kind of you know, give them a hand and kind of, you know... They're not them. in the
0: enemy camp, you know what I mean? Like. I, I,
2: I have yeah. a, a feeling that they can flip and take up more feasible Marxism. If we create an alternative, I think, that's the thing. We have to make a Marxism that makes more sense and is more feasible than the kind of shitty, tanky, mean communist ideology. Yeah,
0: that that preserves the sort of revolutionary instincts that lead people to embrace something insane like anti-revisionism just because it seems like a tangible alternative. Yeah,
2: <laughs> because you actually have actually existing socialism, quote-unquote, that you can yeah. point <laughs> and get excited about. Yeah, and yeah. so it makes a lot of sense that a lot of people who go communist initially go that route because you know they're just like excited about you know china or whatever they're affirming the given first they just like the idea of communism and then they go to people and they're like oh well, communism doesn't work like look at the ussr collapse and they're like oh yeah well look at china for example they're doing good And so you become a dangist kind of, you know, as a result of just talking to people. Or, you know, I was like, oh, Stalin killed like 70 million people. And so next thing you know, you're like, no, Stalin actually killed like... Yeah, he only killed
0: like 50 million people, dude. Whatever.
2: (laughs) I mean, I don't know. The whole death toll question is a whole other episode to talk about. But anyway... Yeah, that's going
1: to be our death toll episode. We're just going to talk about yeah Talk about what the was numbers. the true oh, death toll of
2: communism compared to the black book of communism
1: halloween you know, episode
2: that is i've like, really read the black book of communism exaggerates death tolls based on what i've read
1: is there anything else to say about DeMeister or uh he's pretty metal yeah
2: yep. very metal goth as fuck
4: very edgy very cool everyone on swamp side would endorse him <laughs> yeah um yeah go on yeah. chapo I
2: mean, I I disagree with his ideology, but you learn a lot from reading
0: it. Yeah. In order to bring about the French Revolution, it was necessary to overthrow religion, outrage morality, violate every propriety, and commit every crime. (sighs) Yep. What a tribute to the revolution.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mission accomplished. We did it, fam. Yeah. The
2: revolution is the ultimate
3: crime against God.
1: Commit every like crime. Like
0: the so we're
3: not going to talk about the persistence of the old regime here, I guess. Well, the persistence of the old regime thesis is that the old regime didn't go away. It just started infiltrating bourgeois circles to maintain itself. Arnaud Mayer makes this argument. And I don't know that you yeah. buy it, but he does have some strong evidence that they weren't sure. stupid in this regard. The preponderance
2: yeah, but- of dueling, you know, that's one of his arguments, is that dueling <laughs> didn't go away until World War One. In a way, he's kind of right, because, yeah. you know, in the countries that didn't have these bourgeois revolutions... Basically, the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy joined forces to industrialize. That's basically what you saw in a lot of cases, was this aristocratic bourgeoisie alliance. The values of both classes kind of synthesized, and it created the ideology of new imperialism and social Darwinism, yeah. and proto-fascism, whatever you want to call it.
4: Even in nations like the United States, <laughs> other nations that had like actual bourgeois revolutions, You would still see, like, the bourgeois imitating the aristocracy, especially, like, during the Gilded Age in particular. They would imitate the mannerisms and the styles of, like, the aristocracy.
3: I mean, there's an aggressive form of that going on now. I mean, we still see that. It's not... Yeah. That's more, like, of a parody. That's more historically cut off.
1: Give me, like, a contemporary example
3: the capricious consumption around trump it is not that trump has actually believes he's a new form of aristocracy but he feels the need to mimic it in some real way it's a new money thing yeah new money gotta be baroque man gotta be baroque gotta be totally baroque but not Uh, the obama variety i
4: don't know i don't know it's kind of more of someone who won the lottery would act like if they were actually rich like they would gold-plated everything go to mcdonald's regularly in the limo stuff like that it's not really aristocracy so i mean I,
3: I agree with that but there's there's a first as tragedy then as farce element to this whole thing with this and I say it's
2: veblen's whole theory of the leisure class basically I mean, you know yeah like because the bourgeoisie have to spend money on consumption because of credit it basically, basically creates, like, a whole another sector of, like, competition of status for buying
1: luxury goods. and Yeah, I mean, I could say that more with, like, maybe, like, the old, like, American ruling elites from, like, the 50s or whatever. Yeah, de Tocqueville, like, explicitly says, hey, you know what? Like, I'm kind of sad that
0: America doesn't have an aristocracy. But you know what's pretty cool? Lawyers are kind of like an aristocracy. Isn't that neat? Maybe America's all right after all. Like and Bale, Bale's pretty aristocratic, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you are wrong about that. When you were talking about the way that the aristocracy was blending into the bourgeoisie, the withering away of one class into another over the generations, due to social reproduction and like economic incentives, more than due to the barrel of a gun or some political will. That's a good historical example of what it looks like to watch the old nobility get formally subsumed into capitalism and then eventually
2: uh, uh, it still comes at the barrel of a gun in a lot of cases like the old nobility in the american south was destroyed at the barrel of a gun for example what
1: what yeah, old nobility, american southern nobility wasn't really those people are a fucking cartoon affected inbred useless people they're nothing like the real aristocracy yes. <laughs> hey, you sound like normal democrats right
0: now but um don't call me a normal democrat derek <laughs> Don't say things you can't
3: take back. <laughs> I just said you kind of sounded like one, and you do at that point. Mm-hmm. But the point mm-hmm. is, keep talking. <laughs> but the point is in the United States you had a lot of weird hybrid forms because in this weird way there was an experiment go from like yeoman quasi petite bourgeois, but wasn't really because there wasn't really industrial capitalism to it, or even like agrarian labor i mean the wage labor standards in the colonial period are weird and you have a rapid industrialization which is weirdly dependent on the very thing it wants to abolish and that's true in a lot of systems i mean it's even true in like fucking china like when you look at why the cultural revolution worked was weirdly the same thing it wanted to
4: abolish it was dependent on confucian suicide
3: norms
2: I've never heard that interpretation of
3: the Cultural Revolution.
4: No, it makes sense. You had people who were like intellectuals and lawyers committing suicide because they were forced to do janitor work.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you really look at it, the struggle session had a super high body count because of the shame associated with because of Confucianism, which was the very thing they were trying to eradicate. That actually is really crazy, because I always thought about why did these people, like, you know, I've been bullied before pretty harshly,
2: and I didn't kill myself, so like why did all these people in the Cultural Revolution kill themselves? or just snowflakes. Then you realize there was this ideological system that a lot of yeah. them had.
0: Because they didn't I mean, have live journal, Donald.
3: There's this weird bourgeois argument, Lexi. You might be fascinated with like. Confuci- is it Sangha? There's a book though about how Confucianism rises with Protestantism on this particular point. Confucianism is a really anti-capitalist ethic, and then it flips around the 1850s in China and Korea. It rhymes with a lot of this other stuff that we're talking about with the mastery in this weird way. And the reason why it does is you have this prior cultural form that you're kind of incorporating with another reactionary cultural form. And as soon as it goes on the defensive, it becomes crazy. And then. And another weird way, when the communists confront it, the reason why they were able to kill so many of these people is because they killed themselves, because it was built into
0: the mm-hmm. Confucian cultural norms. That's another twist on human sacrifice. Oh. Does this
2: mean that we have to do a cultural revolution episode later
0: on? I mean, we got to do a lot more Maoism. Oh man, Maoism is cray-cray, but it's fascinating.
2: We should read the Spark pamphlet. That's
0: a critique of Maoism. do if he wanted to read Spark pamphlets, you're going to have to donate $30 to the podcast. Phew. Thank God that's over with. You know, reading reactionaries can really drive me crazy sometimes. I was losing my head. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe in your podcatcher of choice, or just take the fast track to an NSA watch list by funding us on Patreon. Perks include catching early episodes, chilling with us on Discord, listening to us record live, and telling us what to read. Next time... We'll be continuing both our series on anti-imperialism and historical materialism in one fell swoop. Keep your boots clean.